teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism that we consider this morning is an exposition of the article of the Apostles' Creed that says, He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. In James chapter 5, we will find here in the scriptures the truth that he is coming and also the application to us to be patient until he comes. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. And have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. But let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias that is, Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. 
we read God's word that far. We now consider the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19. Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God or the judgment of God and has removed all curse from me, to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me, with all his chosen ones, to himself, into heavenly joys and glory. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, another part of our confession as Christians is that our Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. As we have seen in the past few weeks, there are many who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those who deny that Jesus rose from the dead inevitably also deny that he ascended into heaven. And it also follows then that those who deny that he ascended into heaven also deny that he sits presently at the right hand of God and also that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We live presently in the last days, the days of which the Apostle Peter spoke, in his second epistle, chapter 3, where he said that in the last days there would be scoffers. And those scoffers would say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That is what Peter predicted would happen in the last days. It is amazing how accurate the scripture is because today modern man says that very thing. Where is the coming of Christ, man says? For all things continue as they did from the Big Bang some 13.8 billion years ago. All things continue according to the laws of nature. Nothing ever changes. Where is the coming of Jesus Christ on the clouds of glory? Where is the coming of Christ? He said that he was coming quickly, but now 2,000 years have passed, and he has not yet come. They scoff, they mock, 
but they not only scoff. Increasingly, they persecute. More and more, we find in these lands in which we live, which formerly were dominated by Christian culture and civilization, and Christian churches, the people around us scoff, and the governments increasingly apply pressure to believers. The attempt is being made subtly, but gradually, to push the church out of society, to push the church to the fringes of society, and then finally to eliminate the church altogether. We can feel today the heat of persecution turning up, intensifying, increasing. Persecution is nothing new. There has always been persecution of Christians. James was writing to believers at a time of persecution. There were rich and powerful people, and they were persecuting the poor and weak Christians. That's the first part of the chapter that we read, where he warns the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come upon them because their riches are corrupted, their garments are moth-eaten, their gold and silver is cankered, etc., etc. But he points out that the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, are open to the cries of his children in the earth. He does not ignore his children. And then James turns his attention to the people of God who are suffering, who feel the increasing intensity and heat of persecution. And he says to them, Be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, he says. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Look back, he says, on the prophets before you. Look back on my servant Job and remember how they endured through their sufferings. And remember, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I call your attention then to this Lord's Day under the theme, the coming of our Lord as judge. Notice, first of all, his present position at God's right hand. In the second place, his future coming with the clouds. And then thirdly, his judgment of the living and dead. The Heidelberg Catechism mentions that it is added to our confession that he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. And the Catechism asks, why is that added? That's added because we believe this. We believe and confess that the Lord Jesus Christ presently sits at the right hand of God the Father. And we believe that, as with all of the articles of our faith, because God has revealed it to us in the Scriptures. When Jesus ascended up into heaven... He ascended to the right hand of God. Mark tells us that matter-of-factly 
at the end of his gospel account in chapter 16, verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. That's the scriptures. Furthermore, Luke tells us that in the book of Acts, in a very beautiful account, when the evangelist and deacon Stephen was about to be stoned to death for preaching Christ, Luke tells us this, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked steadfastly up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. What an amazing experience and comfort that was to Stephen just before he felt the rocks and stones of his enemies pounding into his body until at last he gave up the ghost. He saw this beautiful, comforting vision. I see Jesus standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand of God. Not just sitting, but standing, ready, ready to come to open up the doors of heaven and to take me out of this world into my eternal inheritance. What a comfort to Stephen. The apostles taught this throughout their epistles. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, 12, and 13. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, as he saw all of those wondrous visions, one of the first visions he saw was a lamb that had been slain, coming before the throne of God. And at the right hand of God there was a scroll with seven seals. And a great angel said, Who is worthy to open the book of the seven seals? And John was weeping because no one could be found who was worthy to open the book. But he was told, do not weep, for the lamb was slain, and he is worthy. And the lamb came forward and took the book from the right hand of God where he sat down and began to take off the seals of the book of God's counsel. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ presently sits at the right hand of God the Father. What do we mean by that? We mean that when the Lord Jesus ascended up into heaven, he received from God all power in heaven and on earth. And he received a name that is above every name. He received honor and glory like no other man has ever received and no other man will ever receive. The right hand of God is a position in heaven. God does not actually have a right hand as we have a right hand. When the scriptures speak of God's body parts, the scripture is using anthropomorphism. It is using something that we human beings have and understand and applying it to God, even though God does not actually have these parts. God is a spirit. God does not have eyes and ears and hands and feet. 
but the Bible says that he has eyes and ears and hands and feet to help us understand something about him. God has given to us eyes, ears, hands, feet. He has given us hands, and our hands are the instruments of our bodies by which we have the power and ability to carry out what we plan to do. In our minds, we make plans. With our hands, we carry out those plans. So God has created our hands as a reflection of his power. When the scripture speaks of the hand of God, it is referring to his power, his almighty power, his almighty providence, which is everywhere present in the whole creation, by which God carries out his purposes and plans in the universe. Now, God has given to us two hands, a left hand and a right hand. And God has created us such that most of us have a dominant hand. For some people, that is their left hand, but for most people, that is their right hand. And that has been true throughout all of history, that the right hand is usually the dominant hand. And perhaps that is why kings and the ancient world created a place, a seat, a chair, at the right hand of their throne. So the king was sitting on his throne, but he appointed a position at his right hand because his right hand was his dominant hand. And so the right-hand side of his throne was the place where he would appoint a man to sit to whom he would give power, authority, dominion, and honor to rule over all of his kingdom on his behalf. That was true in the ancient world, in Egypt, in Babylon, in Israel. These mighty kings and emperors appointed a right-hand man, and that right-hand man was the highest ruler in the whole kingdom under the king. That's what the scriptures mean then when it teaches that our Lord Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God. God is the king, the king of kings, the king of the whole universe who has all power. He is almighty and omnipotent. He has all authority, all glory, all honor, all dominion. But when he exalted Jesus, he gave to Jesus all that power, authority, dominion, and honor. Now, we must not misunderstand what that means. The idea is not that God the Father sits on the throne and God the Son sits at his right hand. Then we would have the error of subordinationism, that God the Father is higher than God the Son. But we know that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. They are equally eternal and equally God. Rather, we must understand that the one who sits on the throne is God triune. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sits on the throne of heaven as King of Kings. But then we are to understand what the Scriptures teach us, that God the Son became a man. He became incarnate. He was born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He arose. He ascended. And He sat at the right hand of God. God the Son sits at the right hand of God. Not in His divine nature, because in His divine nature He sits at the throne. He sits on the throne. But in His human nature, God the Son sits at the right hand of God. The man, Jesus Christ, who is also very God, sits at the right hand of God. God triune has all power. God alone is almighty. The man, Jesus, is a man. As we saw two weeks ago, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did not become omnipresent as the Lutherans teach. Neither did Jesus become omnipotent. Only God is omnipotent. Jesus is omnipotent in his divine nature as God, but not in his human nature. In his human nature, Jesus has received from God Almighty as much power and authority as any human creature could possibly receive. That's a lot of power. We may even say that's all power and authority in the universe, but it's not the same as God's divine attribute of omnipotence. God Almighty gave to Jesus, our Lord, as much power as is possible for a man to receive. Now, God gave Adam a lot of power in the beginning. He gave him dominion. He gave him power and authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the fish in the sea and the birds of the air. And Adam was king of the creation before he fell. But as Psalm 8 so beautifully teaches us, when it says that God made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, the psalmist is pointing us forward, as we learn in the book of Hebrews, to Jesus. Jesus is the greatest man, the son of man, the true son of man, who was made a little lower than the angels, but then crowned with all glory and power and honor at the right hand of God. What awesome glory was given to our Lord Jesus Christ. And what an amazing prophet that is for us, and what a comfort. The Heidelberg Catechism indicates that this is profitable for us. This is beneficial to us. Not only that we know it, it's beneficial to know it, it's comforting to know it, but there is a benefit that comes to us because of the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And that benefit is first this, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members. When God gave to Jesus all power and authority, that included not only physical power, but also spiritual power. Jesus received from God the Holy Spirit. And he poured out and he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us, his members. Jesus went up into heaven to shower down upon us 
the reign of heavenly graces. And we as his children are the recipients of those wonderful, marvelous graces. He showers upon us the graces of faith and repentance so that we believe in him and we repent of our sins and we hate them and turn from them and flee from them and forsake them. Those are the heavenly graces he pours upon us. The heavenly graces of perseverance and endurance. As James said, be patient, endure. He calls us to that patience and endurance. And Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God and pours down upon us that patience and endurance as a heavenly grace. So that through the persecutions and trials and sufferings, we endure, we persevere. He pours upon us the heavenly graces of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We who are fools by nature, we who are sinful, ignorant, unable to see, blind, he pours down upon us the heavenly graces of wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that we are able to apply the teachings of God's word to our lives and make wise decisions in life. Do you experience those things? He has ascended to the right hand of God to pour upon us the grace of humility by making known to us our sins and miseries so that we come to see how sinful we are and how miserable by nature. He makes us humble. But also the grace of faith whereby we look to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our hope for everlasting righteousness. That's a heavenly grace. And he pours upon us the grace of thanksgiving so that we feel moved and inspired to live our lives for Christ. To love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you experience those graces? Those are divine, heavenly graces that God has given to Jesus and that he pours out as refreshing rains upon us through the preaching and the sacraments in which he gives to us in the way of prayer. Heavenly graces raining down upon us from heaven. In the second place, the prophet is that our Lord Jesus Christ, by his power, defends and preserves us against all our enemies. He has ascended to the right hand of God and received all power and dominion so that he can defend you and preserve you from all your enemies. Do you have enemies? Who are your enemies? Who are mine? The devil. The mighty dragon and lion who roams in the earth, seeking whom he may devour and destroy, seeking to kill and rob and steal from us all those heavenly graces. Jesus is at the right hand of God, defending us, preserving us from Satan so that he is not able to steal away from us the incorruptible seed of eternal life in our hearts. Who are your enemies? The wicked world? The enemies that rise up against us in the form of flesh and blood? Rulers and powers of this present world? Today we are seeing how even the government of our once free nation is turning against Christians, making ordinances and laws 
which are contrary to the teachings of Scripture, contrary to the laws of God. And more and more, they're putting pressure upon the church, trying to push the church to the fringes and outside of the bounds of society so that we can no longer exist in the nation. We're feeling that heat and that persecution rise up. But our Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God with all power. He is not ignorant of what is happening down here in Canada and in the United States and in Eastern Europe and China and Russia. He's not ignorant of these things. But by the power of his hand, he's guiding, directing all these things with a view to his coming on the clouds of heaven. And he is so ruling that none of these enemies of the church can harm us or so much as take a hair off of our heads without his will. He averts all evils from us so that we are able to continue to exist in the world, to preach the gospel, to live the Christian life, to witness to our neighbors. Or he turns those evils to our advantage so that if it is his will that the government finally imprisons us, arrests us, eliminates our church, takes away our ministers and elders and deacons and throws them into prison, then we must not admit defeat or failure, but we must recognize the Lord Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. And he is working all these things together for our good. For our good. For his glory. So that we will never be overwhelmed. So that if we end up in prison because we refuse to obey wicked laws and ordinances, then like Paul and Silas, Peter and John, we are to rejoice and sing at midnight so that all the other prisoners can hear our voices, giving praise to God, thanksgiving, even then in the darkness, knowing that he is not abandoning us. Jesus does not allow any evil to harm us. Sickness, calamity, pandemic, wars and rumors of wars, the apostasy of the church, the introduction of heresies, schism, persecution, all of it is under his dominion. He's directing all things for our good. We cannot be overwhelmed. We cannot be defeated. We are more than conquerors through Christ who sits at God's right hand. That means we will not be overwhelmed by those who scoff, by those who say, where is the promise of his coming? Who entice, who teach false doctrines, who pressure us to affirm the ideals and values of the sexual revolution, who teach us that the greatest values and ideals are the preservation of the earth, as if man, by manly efforts, can save the earth. All these pressures, all these persecutions, James exhorts us, be patient, brethren. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And so in the second place, we believe that he comes again. He is coming. 
That's the teaching of the scriptures as well. How could we believe that if we didn't know it from the scriptures? There is nothing in the creation or in nature around us that indicates or teaches that Jesus is coming again. We can't see Jesus. We know that from the scriptures. We know that from the promises of God revealed in his word. And from the lips of our Lord himself who said in Mark 16, 24 through 26, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And as we just discussed in our young adults Bible study last week, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And John heard this promise of the Lord in Revelation 22. Behold, I come quickly. And so James also teaches us, be patient until the coming of the Lord. James uses an analogy in the text to encourage us to establish our hearts. When he says, establish your hearts, he means stay calm. Be quiet. Remain steady. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Stay the course. Hold fast what you have. Do not be anxious. Do not be fearful. Establish your hearts. Be strong. Be firm. Be courageous. And he gives this beautiful analogy of the husbandman, the farmer, who waits for the former and the latter rains. Imagine the farmer who plants the seed of his crops in the fields in the springtime, but then he is entirely dependent upon God to send the early rain and then the latter rain so that those seeds can sprout and they can grow and they can ripen and come to fruition and bear the fruit, whether it's the kernel of the wheat and the barley or the grapes and the olives and the pomegranates. He has to wait for the precious fruit of the ground. He has to wait patiently, depending upon God, enduring. He might be frightened when the early rains don't come in the measure that he's used to, or when they don't come at the exact time that he's used to. He might be startled. He might be tempted to be afraid. But God says, establish your heart, husbandmen. The rains will come. Your crops will grow. The harvest will come. Be patient and wait. We are currently in the period of history in which we must wait. We are in the period of history between the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God and his second and final coming on the clouds of heaven. We are in the age of history that the Catechism identifies as a time of sorrows and persecutions. When we believe and confess that the Lord Jesus is coming again on the clouds of heaven, we make that confession in the midst of a world that is getting darker and darker, more and more evil and corrupt. As the ungodly fill up the cup of iniquity, Jesus said that in the last days, iniquity will abound and increase lawlessness. Men will throw off 
all of the laws that God has instilled in his creation that even man knows through his conscience. And more and more he will do that which is lawless. And therefore, in these last days, we are not to expect what the post-millennialist expects. That the world is going to get better and better and better. That brighter days await us here in this present world. And that eventually, either through the preaching of the gospel, as the conservative post-millennialist will say, or through social, political, and environmental activism, as the liberal post-millennialist will say, whatever the case may be, through our efforts, there will arrive a golden age of history here on this earth, perhaps for a literal thousand years, or perhaps for many thousands of years, an age here on this earth that will go on and on and on, a beautiful, wonderful age in which the whole world will become Christian. So that Jesus will only come long after that golden age of the millennium. That's not what we are to expect. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach us rather that we are to watch and to pray and to wait patiently because we live in a time of increasing sorrow and persecution. We are to watch the signs of his coming. We are to expect wars and rumors of wars, and an increasing intensity of war in the earth. We are to expect famines, pestilences, pandemics, earthquakes, and other calamities. We are to expect that the love of many grows cold, and that the apostasy of the church takes place before the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We are to expect the rise of the beast out of the sea, and the great tribulation of the saints when the Antichrist makes war with the people of God, when he commands all men to receive the mark of the beast if they are going to buy or sell. We are to expect the rise of Babylon the great, mother of harlots. We are to expect the whore to ride on the back of the beast when the false church arises and rides the back of the political anti-Christian kingdom. We are to expect that in those last days the church will be called to flee out of Babylon into the mountains until at last the great battle of Armageddon cripples the world and only then to look up when all these things happen and the sun becomes dark and the moon does not give its light and the stars begin to hurtle toward the earth then to look up to see that our redemption has come. Then we will see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. We will see the Son of Man himself coming with the clouds of glory and heavenly honor, surrounded by his angels with the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel. And he will raise the dead from their graves by his mighty voice And he will gather the living Christians out of the earth up into the air to be with him forever and ever. And then the wicked will cry out for the rocks to fall on them and the mountains to cover them as they see the wrath of the Lamb. And they will be destroyed when the stars fall to the earth and Christ melts the whole universe with a fervent heat. 
And therefore, when we confess that we believe that Jesus comes again, we are not either expecting a secret rapture of the church prior to all these sorrows and persecutions as the premillennialist teaches. Premillennialism is even more popular than postmillennialism in the Christian world today. The idea that all of a sudden, without any or hardly any prior signs, the church will suddenly vanish from all parts of the earth because Christ will come invisibly, although Scripture never mentions an invisible coming of Christ. And that suddenly the church will be raptured out of the earth prior to these persecutions, prior to the great tribulation, prior to the rise of the beast, the Antichrist. God never promises that his people will escape persecution. There was a reformed man once in one of the places where I was serving. Reformed, but infected slightly with the error of the rapture, the secret pre-tribulational rapture. And repeatedly he came to my study and asked me, how can it be that God, that Christ would allow his bride, his precious bride, to suffer the tribulation? I can't understand that. I can't hardly believe that. And I simply had to tell him again and again and again that God never promises to rescue us from persecution, but to preserve us in persecution. God never promises that we won't suffer. In fact, the scriptures are adamant that we will. We should expect that. We live in unusual era these past hundred or two hundred years here in the West, this era of freedom that we've grown up in and that we know nothing else then. And now as persecution starts to heat up around us, we find it unusual. But Peter says, don't think it's strange, brothers, when fiery trials come. Rejoice. Rejoice that you are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ because you will not have to suffer the everlasting wrath of God in hell. You've been delivered. And if you are counted worthy to suffer persecution, imprisonment, and even martyrdom for the sake of Christ, it will be a tremendous privilege, and great is the reward for those who suffer such persecution. We should not expect a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But we should be planning and waiting and praying and preparing for these last days. Finally, we believe that when Jesus comes, he will judge the living and the dead. He comes as judge. We believe that too because of the teaching of Scripture. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 25, Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. 
our Lord indicates that when he comes, after the destruction of the universe and the resurrection of the dead, somewhere, we don't know where, there will appear the throne of his glory. And he will sit on that throne. And all nations will come before him. Not just the righteous, not just the wicked, not just the elect, not just the reprobate. All nations, the sheep and the goats, will come before his throne. In Acts chapter 10, 42 and 17, verse 31, Luke indicates, too, that both Peter and Paul, in their mission preaching, spoke of the final judgment. And they preached that God raised up Jesus from the dead so that he would be the one to judge the living and the dead. And when Paul preached that to the Greeks in Athens, they mocked him. They scoffed at the idea that someone rose from the dead and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But some believed. That's part of mission preaching. That's part of our witness to this ungodly world that we live in. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Be warned. In fact, if we are persecuted and imprisoned by the ungodly, that may be part of our witness to our captors. The preaching, the witness of the gospel, of salvation, but also the warning of the coming judgment. We should not fear for ourselves if we suffer persecution for a brief moment, but we should fear for our persecutors who will suffer for all eternity the everlasting damnation of hell for the wickedness that they do against Christ's bride. That's part of our witness to them. Be warned. Be warned. Christ is real. He's living. He's coming. He will judge the living and the dead. James also makes it very practical for us in the church when he says in chapter 5, verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. So there James is exhorting Christians. He's speaking to the brethren. He's saying to the brethren, don't grudge against one another. Don't be constantly and overly critical against one another. Don't be constantly murmuring against each other nitpicking each other, biting and devouring each other. Lest ye be condemned, brethren. The judge is standing before the door, he tells us. He's right there. Can't see him. But the door to the right hand of God is right there, and right there, and right there, and right there. And he's standing at that door with his hand on the doorknob, about to turn the doorknob and open the door and come as judge. He's coming, brethren. He's coming. You see, sometimes when the people of God experience the pressures that come from the ungodly world and the temptations, there's also the temptation that we are grudging towards one another. 
There's the temptation that we start to criticize one another and how others are behaving in the midst of the pressures of the persecution and the trials of life, how they are responding, how they are reacting. And James warns us, brethren, don't grudge against one another. The judge is standing before the door. Be patient, brethren. Establish your hearts. Stand together. Hold fast what you have. And look to the prophets and saints before you as an example of suffering affliction. We count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. The Lord Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that's a great comfort to us. The Catechism says that's a comfort. That's not a comfort to the ungodly. For them it's a cause of great fear. Or it ought to be. Just this last week I listened to an interview of a young man who said he was an agnostic deist. So in other words, he said that he believes there is a God. He's pretty sure there's a God at least. But he's not entirely sure. When he was questioned, he said, yes, I believe there is such a thing as good and evil. But I don't think that God is the one who determines good and evil. I'm not sure about that. And whether God is ever going to come to judge, he's not sure about that either. He's just not sure. But when he was asked, if God is real, and if he is coming, and if he does judge, how do you think you will do at the judgment? What score will God give to you? You know the Ten Commandments, right? He was asked, yes. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, yes. How are you doing with those? Are you doing those things? Well, no. Well, have you ever had a lustful thought? Oh, of course, I've had many lustful thoughts. Have you ever had anger towards your brother? Yeah, many, many times. Have you ever had selfishness and pride? Of course, everybody does. And then it was added up how many times he had a sinful, lustful, angry, proud thought And it was discovered probably hundreds of thousands of times in his short life of only 22 or 23 years. This was on a college campus. And yet he thought he would probably score about a C plus if he was judged by God. And then when asked, what do you think God expects as a passing grade? He said, probably a B minus. He was told God actually demands an A plus But he was hopeful in his agnosticism that if there is a God and if he comes and if he judges me, that maybe he will be lenient and bend the rules and give me a B minus. How frightening. And we live in the midst of thousands and thousands of people just like that young man on the college campuses and universities of this country and my country and throughout Europe. The Western world is evolving into that kind of thinking. The scriptures teach us Jesus Christ is certainly coming again to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes and sits on the great throne of his judgment, he's going to open the books we read in Revelation 20. 
And those books are the books of every single thought you've ever had. Every desire. Every word you've ever spoken. Every action you've ever performed in public and in secret. Those which you know and admit are sinful and those which you, in your self-imposed deception and ignorance, refuse to admit as sinful. All of it will be open and exposed. And then he will judge those actions, thoughts, words, and desires according to the perfect standard of the law of God. And then he will pronounce the verdict, guilty or innocent. That's the final judgment. And the catechism says, what comfort is it to thee? What comfort is that to thee? We would tend to think there's no comfort in that. I don't want my sins to be exposed. I don't want everyone to see that. I don't want the books of my life to be opened. What comfort is it to thee, the catechism asks. You're not afraid of that judgment, are you? The catechism implies, it presupposes, the Christian's not afraid. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. He's longing for the Lord to come. And also to come as judge. What is your comfort then? The catechism tells us, that this same person who comes to judge, this same person, is the one who loved me and who gave himself for me, who shed his blood for me and gave his body to be broken for me on the cross, and who by his shed blood and broken body on the cross has canceled out every sinful thought, every sinful word, and every sinful deed so that when he comes to judge, when he exposes all that I've done, he will expose it as a sin that is forgiven, a sin that is covered, a sin that will no more be remembered for all eternity because God is gracious and merciful. And I have this comfort too, in the midst of my sorrows and persecutions, that he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. But he will translate me with all of his chosen ones. Notice the truth of election. With all of his elect. Because at the great judgment, it is the elect who will be judged righteous through the blood of the Lamb. It is the sheep to whom Christ will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And then we will know, like we have never known before, what grace of God really is. So be patient, brethren. I say that to you, and I say that to myself. I need to hear that just as much as you. Let us be patient. Let us establish our hearts. Let us endure. Let us persevere and be patient. The coming of the Lord is drawing near. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the promise of His coming. We admit, Father, we are a fearful people. We are so often anxious and worried about so many things. We pray, Father, that Thou would take pity upon us, that Thou would remember that we are dust, that we are frail and weak. And we pray, lift up our hearts to the coming of Christ and grant that we might be patient and establish our hearts and be strong and courageous even as we live in these days of darkening persecution and wickedness in the world. Hear our prayer and come, Lord Jesus. Amen.